The following title by John Flavel is called The Method of Grace. An Epistle to the Reader Every creature by the instinct of nature, or by the light of reason, strives to avoid danger and get out of harm's way. The cattle in the fields, presage in a storm at hand, fly to the hedges and thickets for shelter. The fowls of heaven by the same natural instinct, perceiving the approach of winter, take their timely flight to a warmer climate. This, naturalists have observed of them, and their observation is confirmed by scripture testimony. Of the cattle it is said in Job 37, 6 to 8, He saith to the snow, Be thou on earth. Likewise a small rain and a great rain of his strength. Then the beasts go into dens and remain in their places. And of the fowls of the air it is said, Jeremiah 8, verse 7, The stork in the heaven knows her appointed times. And the turtle and the crane and the swallow observed the time of their coming. But man, being a prudent and prospecting creature, has the advantage of all other creatures in his foreseeing faculty. For God has taught him more than the beasts of the earth, and made him wiser than the fowls of heaven, Job 35, verse 11. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment, Ecclesiastes 8, 5. For as there are natural signs of the change of the weather, Matthew 16, verse 3. So there are moral signs of the changes of times and providence. Yet, such is a supineness and inexcusable regardlessness of most men that they will not fear till they feel, nor think any danger very considerable until it become inevitable. We of this nation have long enjoyed the light of the glorious gospel among us. It has shown in much clearness upon this sinful island for more than a whole century of happy years. But the longest day has an end, and we have cause to fear a bright sun is going down upon us, for the shadows in England are grown greater than the substance, which is one sign of approaching night. Jeremiah 6, 4. The beasts of prey creep out of their dens and coverts, which is another sign of night at hand. Psalm 104, verse 20. And the workmen come home apace from their labors and go to rest, which is as sad a sign as any of the rest. Job 7, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 57 verses 1 and 2, happy were it, if in such a juncture as this every man would make it his work and business to secure himself in Christ from the storm of God's indignation, which is ready to fall upon these sinful nations. It is said of the Egyptians when the storm of hell was coming upon the land in Exodus 9.20, he that feared the word of the Lord made his servants and cattle flee into the houses. It is but an odd sight to see the prudence of an Egyptian outvying the wisdom and circumspection of a Christian. God, who provides natural shelter and refuge for all creatures, has not left his people unprovided with and destitute of defense and security. In the most impetuous times of national judgments, it is said in Micah 5 verse 5, This man, meaning the man Christ Jesus, shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land, and he shall dread in our palaces. Isaiah 26, 20, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut your doors about you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. My friends, let me speak as freely as I am sure I speak seasonably. A sound of judgment is in our ears. The Lord's voice cries to the city, and a man of wisdom shall see your name, hear the rod, and who has appointed it. Micah 6 verse 9. All things round about us seem to posture themselves for trouble and distress. 
Where is a man of wisdom that does not foresee a shower of wrath and indignation coming? We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask you now, and see whether a man does travail with child. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the day of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be delivered out of it. Jeremiah 30 verses 5 to 7. Many eyes are now open to see the common danger, but some foresaw it long ago when they saw the general decay of godliness everywhere, the notorious profanity and atheism that overspread the nations, the spirit of enmity and bitterness against the power of godliness wherever it appeared. And though there seemed to be a present calm and general quietness, yet those that were wise in heart could not but discern the distress of nations with great perplexity in these seeds of judgment and calamity. But as the ephah feels more and more, so the determined wrath grows more and more visible to every eye. And it is a fond thing to dream of tranquility in the midst of so much iniquity. Indeed, if these nations were once swept with the besom of reformation, we might hope God would not sweep them with the besom of destruction. But what peace can be expected while the highest provocations are continued? It is, therefore, the great and present concern of all to, to provide for themselves of a refuge before the storm overtakes them. For as Augustine well observes, O take up your lodging and the attributes and promises of God before the night overtake you. View them often by faith, and clear up your interest in them, that you may be able to go to them in the dark when the ministers and ordinances of Christ have taken their leave of you, and bid you a good night. Whilst many are hastening on the wrath of God by profaneness, and many by smiting their fellow servants and multitudes resolve that trouble come, to fish and the troubled waters for safety and preferment, not doubting. Whensoever the overflowing flood comes, but they shall stand dry. Oh, that you would be mourning for their sins and providing better for your own safety. Reader, it is your one thing necessary to get a cleared interest in Jesus Christ, which being once obtained, you may face a storm with boldness and say, Come troubles and distresses, losses and trials, prisons and death. I am provided for. Do your worst. You can do me no harm. Let the winds roar, the lightnings flash, the rains and hail fall never so furiously. I have a good roof over my head, a comfortable lodging provided for me. My place of defense is a munition of rocks where bread shall be given me and my waters shall be sure. Isaiah 33 verse 16. The design of the ensuing treatise is to assist you in this great work. And though it was promised to the world many years past, yet providence has reserved it for the fittest season, and brought it to your hand in a time of need. It contains a method of grace in the application of the great redemption to the souls of men, as the former part contains a method of grace in the interpretation thereof by Jesus Christ. The acceptation God has given the former part, signified by the desires of many, for the publication of this has at last prevailed with me, notwithstanding the secret consciousness of my inequality to so great an undertaking. To adventures a second part also upon the ingenuity and candor of the reader.
and I consent the more willingly to the publication of this because the design I first aimed at could not be entire and complete without it, but especially the quality of the subject matter which, through the blessing and concurrence of the Spirit, may be useful both to rouse the drowsy consciences of the sleepy generation and to assist the upright in clearing the work of the Spirit upon their own souls. These considerations have prevailed with me against all discouragements. And now, reader, it is impossible for me to speak particularly and distinctly to the case of your soul, which I am ignorant of, except the Lord shall direct my discourse to it in some of the following suppositions. If you be one that is sincerely applied and receive Jesus Christ by faith, this discourse, through the blessing of the Spirit, may be useful to you to clear and confirm your evidences, to melt your heart in the sense of your mercies, and to engage and quicken you in the way of your duties. Here you will see what great things the Lord has done for your soul, and how these dignities, as you are his son or daughter, by the double title of regeneration and adoption, oblige you to yield up yourself to God entirely, and to say from your heart, Lord, whatever I am, I am for you. Whatever I can do, I will deal for you, and whatever I can suffer, I will suffer for you. And all that I am or have, and all that I can do or suffer, is nothing to what you have done for my soul. If you be a stranger to regeneration and faith, a person that makes a powerless profession of Christ, that has a name to live but are dead, here it is possible that you may meet with something that will convince you how dangerous a thing it is to be an old creature in a new creature's dress and habit. And what is it that blinds your judgment and is likeliest to prove your ruin? A seasonable and full conviction whereof will be the greatest mercy that can befall you in this world, if by this at last God may help you to put on Christ, as well as the name of Christ. If you are in darkness about the state of your own soul, and will inhabit faithfully and impartially tried by the rule of the word, which will not warp to any man's humor or interest, here you will find some weak assistance offered you to clear and disentangle your doubting thoughts, which, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, may lead you to a comfortable settlement and inward peace. But, if you are a proud, conceited, presumptuous soul who has too little knowledge and too much pride and self-love to admit any doubts or scruples of your state towards God, There are many things in this treatise proper for your conviction and better information. For woe to you, if you should not fear till you begin to feel your misery. If your troubles do not come on till all your hopes are won off. I know all these things are performed by me with much infirmity. And the whole management is quite below the dignity of the subject. But when I consider that the success of sermons and books in the world has but little relation to the elegancy of language and accuracy of method, and that many may be useful who cannot be excellent, I am willing in all humility and sincerity to commit it to the direction of providence and of the blessing of the Spirit. One thing I shall earnestly request of all the people of God, into whose hands this shall fall, that now at last they will be persuaded to end all their unbrotherly quarrels and strifes among themselves, which have wasted so much precious time and decayed the vital spirits of religion, hindered the conversion of multitudes, and increased and confirmed the atheism of the times, 
and now at last open a breach at which the common enemy is ready to enter and end a quarrel to our cost. O put on, as the elect of God bowels of mercy and a spirit of charity and forbearance, if not for your own sakes, yet for the church's sake. I remember it is noted in our English history as a very remarkable thing that when the Seven River overflowed part of the Somersetshire, it was observed that dogs and rabbits, cats and rats, to avoid the common destruction, would swim to the next rising ground and abide quietly together in that common danger without the least discovery of their natural antipathy. The story applies itself. And oh, that Christians would everywhere depose their animosities, that the hearts of the fathers might be turned to the children, and the children to the fathers, lest God come and smite the earth with a curse. Oh, that you would dwell more in your closets, and be more frequently and fervently upon your knees. Oh, that you would search your hearts more narrowly, and sift them more thoroughly than ever, before the day pass as a taff. And the Lord's fierce anger come upon you. Look into your Bibles, then into your hearts, and then to heavens for a true discovery of your conditions. And if this poor might may contribute anything to that end, it will be a great reward of the unworthy labors of your servant in Christ, John Flavel. Sermon 1. The general nature of effectual application stated. Earth a new birth. 1 Corinthians one thirty. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He that inquires what is the just value and worth of Christ, asks a question which puts all men on earth and angels in heaven to an everlasting nonplus. The highest attainment of our knowledge in this life is to know that himself and his love do pass knowledge. Ephesians 3 verse 19. But how excellent soever Christ is in himself. What treasures of righteousness soever lie in his blood, and whatever joy, peace, and ravishing comfort spring up to man out of his incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation, they all give down their distinct benefits and comforts to them in the way of effectual application. For never was any wound healed by a prepared but unapplied plaster, never anybody worn by the most costly garments made but not put on. Never any heart refreshed and comforted by the richest cordial compounded, but not received. Nor from the beginning of the world was it ever known that a poor, deceived, condemned, polluted, miserable sinner was actually delivered out of that woeful state, until of God Christ was made unto him wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. For look, as the condemnation of the first Adam passes not to us, except as by generation we are his. So grace and remission pass not from the second Adam to us, except as by regeneration we are his. Adam's sin hurts none but those that are in him, and Christ's blood profits none but those that are in him. A greater weight, therefore, does there hang upon the effectual application of Christ to the souls of men. And what is there in the whole world so awfully solemn, so greatly important as this is, such is a strong consolation resulting from it that the apostle in this context offers it to the believing Corinthians as a superabundant recompense for the despicable meanness and baseness of their outward condition in this world, of which he has just before spoken in verses 27 and 28, telling them 
though the world condemned them as vile, foolish, and weak. Yet God Christ has made unto them wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. In which words we have an enumeration of the chief privileges of believers and account of the method in which they come to be infested with them. First, their privileges are enumerated, namely wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, mercies of inestimable value in themselves. In such as respect to fourfold misery lying upon sinful man, namely their ignorance, guilt, pollution, and the whole train of miserable consequences and effects led in upon the nature of man, yea, the best and holiest of men, by sin. Lapsed man is not only deep in misery, but grossly ignorant. Both that he is so and how to recover himself from it, sin has left him at once senseless of his state, and at a perfect loss about the true remedy. To cure this, Christ has made to him wisdom not only by improvement of those treasures of wisdom that are in himself, for the benefit of such souls as he united to him is in head, consulting the good of his own members, but also by imparting his wisdom to them by the spirit of illumination, in which they come to discern both their sin and danger, is also the true way of their recovery from both, through the application of Christ to their souls by faith. But alas, simple illumination does but increase our burden and exasperate our misery as long as sin and the guilt of it is either imputed to our persons to condemnation or reflected by our consciences in a way of accusation. With design, therefore, to remedy and heal this sore evil, Christ has made of God to us righteousness, complete and perfect righteousness, in which our obligation of punishment is dissolved. And by this, a solid foundation for a well-settled peace of conscience firmly established. Yea, but although the removal of guilt from our persons and consciences be an inestimable mercy, yet alone, it cannot make us completely happy. For though a man should never be damned for sin, yet what is it less than hell upon earth to be under the dominion and pollution of every base lust? It is misery enough to be daily defiled by sin, though a man should never be damned for it. To complete, therefore, the happiness of the redeemed, Christ is not only made of God to them wisdom and righteousness, the one carrying our ignorance, the other our guilt, but he has made sanctification also to relieve us against the dominion and pollutions of our corruptions. He comes, both by water and by blood, not by blood only, but by water also, First John 5, 6, purging as well as pardoning. How complete and perfect a cure is Christ. But yet something is required beyond all this to make our happiness perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And that is the removal of those doleful effects and consequences of sin, which, notwithstanding all the aforementioned privileges and mercies still lie upon the souls and bodies of illuminated, justified, and sanctified persons. For even with the best and holiest of men, what swarms of vanity, loads of deadness, and fits of unbelief do daily appear in and oppress their souls, to the embittering of all the comforts of life to them. And how many diseases, deformity, and pains oppress their bodies which daily boulder away by them, till they fall into the grave by death. 
even as the bodies of other men do, who never receive such privileges from Christ as they do. For if Christ be in us, as the Apostle speaks in Romans 8.10, the body is dead because of sin. Sanctification exempts us not from mortality, but from all these and whatsoever else the fruits and consequences of sin, Christ is redemption to his people also. This seals up the sum of mercies. This so completes the happiness of the saints that it leaves nothing to desire. These four, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, take in all that is necessary or desirable to make a soul truly and perfectly blessed. Secondly, we have here the method and way by which the elect come to be invested with these excellent privileges, the account in which the apostle gives us in these words, who of God is made unto us. In which expression four things are remarkable first, that Christ and his benefits go inseparably and undividedly together. It is Christ himself who has made all this to us. We can have no saving benefits separate and apart from the person of Christ. Many would willingly receive his privileges who will not receive his person. But it cannot be. If we all have one, we must take the other two. Yea, we must accept his person first, and then his benefits. As it is in a marriage covenant, so it is here. Secondly, the Christ with his benefits must be personally and particularly applied to us before we can receive any actual saving privilege by him. He must be made unto us, in other words, particularly applied to us as a sum of money becomes or is made the ransom and liberty of a captive when it is not only promised, but paid down in his name and legally applied for that use and end. When Christ died, the ransom was prepared, the sum laid down, but yet the elect continues still in sin and misery, notwithstanding, till by effectual calling it is actually applied to their persons and then they are made free, Romans 5, verses 10 and 11, reconciled by Christ's death, by whom we have now received the atonement. Thirdly, that this application of Christ is a work of God and not of man. Of God he is made unto us. The same hand that prepared it must also apply it, or else we perish. Notwithstanding all that the Father has done in contriving and appointing, and all that the Son has done in executing and accomplishing the design thus far, and its actual application is a work of the Spirit by a singular appropriation. Fourthly and lastly, this expression imports the suitableness of Christ and the necessities of sinners. What they want, he is made to them. And indeed as money answers all things and is convertible to meat, drink, raiment, medicine, or whatever else our bodily necessities require. So Christ is virtually and eminently all that the necessities of our souls require, bread to the hungry, and clothing to the naked soul. In a word, God prepared and furnished him on purpose to answer all our wants which fully suits the apostle's sense when he saith, who of God is made into us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. The sum of all is doctrine that the Lord Jesus Christ, with all his precious benefits, become ours by God's special and effectual application. There is a twofold application of our redemption, one primary, the other secondary. The former is the act of God, the Father, applying it to Christ, our surety. 
and virtually to us in Him. The latter is the act of the Holy Spirit personally and actually applying it to us in the world of conversion. The former has a respect and relation of an example, model, or pattern to this, and this is produced and wrought by the virtue of that. What was done upon the person of Christ was not only virtually done upon us, considered in him as a common public representative person, in which sense we are said to die with him and live with him, to be crucified with him and buried with him. But it was also intended for a platform or idea of what is to be done by the Spirit, actually upon our souls and bodies and our single persons. As he died for sin, so the Spirit applying his death to us and the work of mortification causes us to die to sin by the virtue of his death. And as he was quickened by the Spirit and raised unto life, so the Spirit applying unto us a life of Christ causes us to live by spiritual vivification. Now, this personal, secondary, and actual application of redemption to us by the Spirit and his sanctifying work is that which I am engaged here to discuss and open which I shall do in these following propositions. Number 1. The application of Christ to us is not only comprehensive of our justification, but of all these works of the Spirit which are known to us in Scripture by the names of regeneration, vocation, sanctification, and conversion. Though all these terms have small respective differences among themselves, yet they are all included in this general. The applying and putting on of Christ, Romans 13, verse 14, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ. Regeneration expresses those supernatural, divine new qualities infused by the Spirit into the soul, which are the principles of all holy actions. Vocation expresses the terms from which and to which the soul moves, when the Spirit works savingly upon it, under the gospel call. Sanctification notes a holy dedication of heart and life to God are becoming the temples of the living God, separate from all profane sinful practices to the Lord's only use and service. Conversions denotes the great change itself which the Spirit causes upon the soul, turning it by a sweet, irresistible efficacy from the power of sin and Satan to God in Christ. Now all these are imported in and done by the application of Christ to our souls. For when once the efficacy of Christ's death and the virtue of his resurrection come to take place upon the heart of any man, he cannot but turn from sin to God and become a new creature, living and acting by new principles and rules. So the apostle observes in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 and 6, speaking of the effect of this work of the Spirit upon that people. Our gospel, he says, come not to you in word only, but in power in the Holy Ghost. There was the effectual application of Christ to them, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, verse 6. There was their effectual call, and you turned from dumb idols to serve the living and true God, verse 9. There was their conversion, so that you were in samples to all that believe. There was their life of sanctification or dedication to God, so that all these are comprehended in effectual application. Proposition 2. The application of Christ to the souls of men is that great project and design of God in this world. For the accomplishment whereof all the ordinances and all the officers of the gospel are appointed and continued in the world. This 
the gospel expressly declared to be its direct end in the great business of all of its officers, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The great aim and scope at all of Christ's ordinances and officers are to bring men into union with Christ, and so build them up to perfection in him, or to unite them to and confirm them in Christ. And when it shall have finished this design, then shall the whole frame of gospel ordinances be taken down, and all of its officers disbanded the kingdom. In other words, this present economy, manner, and form of government shall be delivered up, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. What are ministers? But the bridegroom's friends, ambassadors for God, to beseech men to be reconciled. When therefore all of the elect are brought home in a reconciled state in Christ, when the marriage of the Lamb has come, our work and office expire together. Proposition 3. Such is the importance and great concern of the personal application of Christ to us by the Spirit, that whatsoever the Father has done in the contrivance or the Son has done in the accomplishment of our redemption is all unavailable and ineffectual to our salvation without this. It is confessedly true that God's good pleasure appointing us from eternity to salvation is in its kind a most full and sufficient impulsive cause of our salvation and every way able for so much as it is concerned to produce its effect. In Christ's humiliation and sufferings are a most complete and sufficient meritorious cause of our salvation, to which nothing can be added to make it more apt, and able to procure our salvation than it already is. Yet, neither the one nor the other can actually save any soul without the Spirit's application of Christ to it. For where there are a number of social causes, or can causes, necessary to produce one effect, there the effect cannot be produced until the last cause is wrought. Thus it is here. The Father has elected and the Son is redeemed, but until the Spirit, who is the last cause, has wrought his part also, we cannot be saved. For it comes in the Father's and the Son's name and authority to put the last hand to the work of our salvation by bringing all the fruits of election and redemption home to our souls in this work and effectual vocation. Hence the Apostle in 1 Peter 1 verse 2, noting the order of causes in their operations for the bringing about of our salvation, thus states it, Elect, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Here you find God's election in Christ's blood, the true great causes of salvation, and yet neither of these alone, nor both together can save us. There must be added the sanctification of the Spirit by which God's decree is executed in the sprinkling i.e. the personal application of Christ's blood as well as the shedding of it, before we can have the saving benefit of either of the former causes. Proposition 4, the application of Christ. With the saving benefits is exactly of the same extent and latitude with the Father's election and the Son's intention in dying, and cannot possibly extend it to one soul further, whom he did predestinate. Demi also called, Romans 8, 30 and 13, verse 48. 
as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. 2 Timothy 1.9, who is saved and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was the Father, Son, and Spirit, between whom was the counsel of peace, work out their design in a perfect harmony and consent. As there was no jar in their counsel, so there can be none in the execution of it. Those whom the Father before all time chose, they and they only are the persons whom the Son, when the fullness of time for the execution of that decree was come, died for. John 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men which you gave me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest to me. In verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, or I consecrate, devote, or set myself apart for a sacrifice for them. And those for whom Christ died are the persons to whom the Spirit effectually applies the benefits and purchases of his blood. He comes in the name of the Father and Son. But the world cannot receive him, for it neither sees nor knows him. John 14, verse 17. They that are not of Christ's sheep do not believe. John 10, verse 26. Christ is indeed a fullness of saving power, but the dispensation of it is limited by the Father's will. Therefore, he tells us in Matthew 20, verse 23, It is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. In which words, he no way denies his authority to give glory as well as grace. He only shows that in the dispensation proper to him as mediator, he was limited by his Father's will and counsel. And thus also are the dispensations of grace by the Spirit, in like manner limited both by the counsel and will of the Father and Son. For as he proceeds from them, so he acts in the administration proper to him by commission from both. John 14, verse 26. The Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, and as he comes forth into the world by this joint commission, so his dispensations are limited in his commission. For it is said in John 16, verse 13, He shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. In other words, he shall in all things act according to his commission which the Father and I have given him. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, John 5, 19. And the Spirit can do nothing of himself but what he hears from the Father and Son. And it is impossible it should be otherwise, considering not only the unity of their nature, but also of their will and design. So that you see the application of Christ and benefits by the Spirit are commensurable with the Father's secret counsel and the Son's design and dying, which are the rule, model, and pattern of the Spirit's working. Proposition 5. The application of Christ's souls by the regenerating work of the Spirit is that which makes the first internal difference and distinction among men. It is very true that in respect of God's foreknowledge and purpose there was a distinction between one man and another. Before any man had a being, one was taken, another left, and with respect to the death of Christ there is a great difference between one and another. He laid down his life for the sheep. He prayed for them, and not for the world, but all this while as to any relative change of state to real change of temper, they are upon a level with the rest of the miserable world. The elect themselves are by nature the children of wrath, even as others, Ephesians 2, verse 3. And to the same purpose the apostle tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, when he had given in that black bill, describing the most lewd, profligate, abominable riches in the world, men whose practices stunk in the very nostrils of nature and were able to make no more sober heathens blush, 
After this he tells the Corinthians, And such were some of you, but you were washed. Look, these were your companions once, as they are you lately were. The work of the Spirit does not only evidence and manifest that difference which God's election has made between man and man, as the Apostle speaks in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5, but it also makes a twofold difference itself, namely in state and temper, in which they visibly differ not only from other men, but also from themselves after this work. Though a man be the who, yet not the what he was. This work of the Spirit makes us new creatures, namely, for quality and temper, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Proposition 6. The application of Christ by the work of regeneration is that which yields to men all the sensible sweetness and refreshing comforts that they have in Christ, and in all that he has done, suffered or purchased for sinners. An unsanctified person may relish the natural sweetness of the creature as well as he that is sanctified. He may also seem to relish and taste some sweetness in the delicious promises and discoveries of the gospel by a misapplication of them to himself. But this is like the joy of a beggar dreaming he is a king, but he awakes and finds himself a beggar still. But for the rational, solid, and genuine delights and comforts of religion, no man tastes them till this work of the Spirit is first passed upon his soul. It is an enclosed pleasure, a stranger intermeddles not with it. The white stone and a new name, denoting the pleasant results and fruits of justification and adoption. No man knows but he that receives it, Revelation 2, 7. There are all those things missing in the unsanctified, though elect soul, that should capacitate and enable it to relish the sweetness of Christ and religion, namely propriety, evidence, and suitableness of spirit. Proposition 7, the application of Christ to the soul effectually, though it be so far wrought in the first saving work of the spirit is truly to unite the soul to Christ and save it from the danger of perishing. Yet, it is a work gradually advancing in the believer's soul whilst it abides on this side heaven and glory. It is true indeed that Christ is perfectly and completely applied to the soul in the first act for righteousness. Justification being a relative change properly admits no degrees, but is perfected together in at once in one only act. Though as to its manifestation, sense, and effects, it is various degrees. But the application of Christ to us for wisdom and sanctification is not perfected in one single act, but rises by many in slow degrees to its just perfection.